1: wherever you sell with shopify you'll harness the same intuitive features trusted apps and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands sign up today for your one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com tech all lowercase that's shopify.com tech
2: without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop hospitals factories schools and power plants they all depend on you
3: We're experimenting with new ways to communicate during this pandemic. We've come to rely, and quickly burn out, on teleconferencing. We're straining to understand voices muffled by masks and trust that our eyes can express nuanced emotions, usually conveyed by the lower half of our face. But trying to figure out how to communicate effectively is not new for humans. This is just the latest challenge. I'm Seth Shostak.
4: I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. What follows is an episode of Big Picture Science originally broadcast last year that explores the challenges and rewards of finding common communication ground, why trying to tickle AI's funny bone is serious science, the scientist who took the initiative to message aliens and the universal language that he used, and why ultimately seeing eye to eye is worth it. An anthropologist says that using nuanced language made our ancestors a more peaceful species. Find out what is gained in translation.
2: Never
3: mind the idea that everyone's a critic. What I found is everyone's a comedian.
4: Alexa, could you tell us a joke? Who is the roundest knight at King Arthur's table? Circumference.
3: Okay, maybe not everyone's a comedian, but I don't underestimate our computer companions' comic potential, their ability to master mirth-making, because the rising arc of technology will make them smarter and eventually humorous. Cracking funny jokes is surely in their future.
4: But teaching computers to tell a joke is one thing. What's harder is teaching them to recognize one. And that is the challenge for scientists who, using machine learning, are trying to generate more natural interactions with our devices.
3: And that's what I want from my virtual assistant, to appreciate my cleverness. Hey, Alexa, don't you think bananas have a peel?
4: Sorry, I'm not sure.
3: It's a shame because I've been known to occasionally joke around in my interactions with people. Hey, Rebecca, can I ask you about this thing with the IEEE? Well,
4: they want you to moderate a conversation amongst other people. Well, that's
3: because they're so angry. They need moderation. I feel like I'm going to be a carbon rod for the IEEE. You
4: think they're an intemperate bunch?
3: (laughs) Well, it depends on whether they're drinking or not, I suppose. So, Alexa, Rebecca laughed at my jokes. Why don't you, virtual assistants, laugh at my jokes?
0: Sorry, I'm better at telling jokes than responding to them. Most of them do not have an ability to understand that something is a joke unless they can find a very, very similar joke somewhere in its knowledge base. It took a long
4: time for machines to understand basic human speech. This is how they do it. Virtual assistants, and we'll try to limit saying their names so we don't trigger yours, record your question, parse it into recognized commands and keywords, search for answers, and make a response. The accuracy of machine learning is proportional to the amount of data at hand, and errors give the machine a chance to correct itself for the next time. But
3: recognizing humor isn't just a matter of training with a sufficiently large data set. Humor is subtle, context-dependent, and the delivery is important, too. What's funny for one person might be offensive for another, and while you may agree with me that puns are the apex of amusement, for others, irony, sarcasm, or absurdity may more readily tickle their funny bone.
4: But as of now, none of those genres tickle your virtual assistants, but why would we want them to? I mean, be careful what you wish for.
0: If it thinks or she thinks that it's a joke, um, then potentially it could laugh. But then the question is how it should laugh in a manner that's acceptable to a human being. Sure, I can laugh.
2: Tee-hee, tee-hee.
4: Julia Rays is willing to endure the weird laughter, a computer scientist and associate professor at Purdue University's Department of Computer and Information Technology, where her interest is in natural language understanding.
0: She has a reason for teaching our AI assistants to lighten up. I think the expectations right now are that a computer should be as sociable as possible. We are past the level where we can just give a command to a computer. It's not just computer scientists that are using the machines. Now you have a grandmother who doesn't know how to talk to a computer unless she talks to it as she would to a normal human being and uh, most of the time people expect their response that is similar to a human being, and thus we have to account for humor.
3: Well, it it seems to me that, okay, what you're saying is that It isn't a matter of having them enriching their AI lives by (laughs) understanding our jokes, but it's a matter of facilitating the conversation. If I pay attention to conversations I have with my colleagues here, it seems that every third thought is often a joke in the sense of a reference or maybe sarcasm, mock criticism, whatever. So if the person I'm talking to in the halls here, all of whom are human, if they don't understand humor, they don't understand me. So I I guess that's sort of the motivation here?
0: Yes, um, so it's sort of on demand, right? But if you're talking to your colleagues and they don't understand your jokes, eventually you will stop joking with them, right? So it's kind of interesting. On the one hand, we definitely want computers to be as personable and as sociable as possible and talk to us at the same level as we would want them to talk. On the other, there is that accessibility and expectation threshold. If they are no good, then I'm just not gonna use them for that particular task. So it's an interesting balance.
3: Okay, it sounds like uh, something that's requisite for our future in which we interact with these machines more and more. Uh, In order to teach, computers' humor? Do we have to have a definition of humor? I mean, and is there such a definition? I would think that if there was, uh, there would be lots of people in other fields that would profit from that.
0: Um, Humor research is actually a quite multidisciplinary field with its own conference and its own research journal, not one, but several. So, um, yes, people are looking at what humor is, what are the criteria for something to be funny or not funny, what kind of people would laugh at something and what kind of people wouldn't, what it takes from a linguistic point of view, how would be different to tell a joke to a large audience versus somebody in the hallway very interesting field, well, in my opinion, but then again, I'm biased. However, to answer your question, no, we don't know what humor is. Um, There is no definition that would give us the necessary and sufficient condition. There has been many attempts to do that. Um, But to say that there are some that are absolutely perfect and everyone in the humor community agrees with those definitions, no such thing.
3: Yeah, I I suppose if you could come up with a good definition, maybe you could have other kinds of AI that actually made up jokes. I mean, uh, you, could, you could generate humor, not just recognize it.
0: That's an interesting idea, actually, and arguably um, generation of humor is a bit easier than detection of humor because generation can be limited to a particular domain. You don't have to understand everything that is going on in a joke. As long as you understand just several situations, you should be able to generate a joke about it.
3: I see. Okay, and what about the fact that uh, I am often um, told, I I lived in Europe for a while and I lived in a country where they didn't speak English as their first language. I would try and make jokes in the local language and I was admonished by uh, the people around me. They said, look, You know, your use of the language is pretty funny, but your jokes are not. It seems to be a very, very subtle thing. And and maybe humor doesn't cross borders. Maybe humor is kind of culture-specific.
0: That is a question for sociologists. And um, there are quite a bit of research on how humor travels and how jokes travel. And there are some jokes that are universal. The target may change a little bit in the joke, depending on the country, but the idea and the formulation is going to be very, very similar. And then there are some jokes that absolutely don't travel. Now what you're talking about is the jokes that are based on language, and that's a different beast. But there are quite a few jokes that are not based on language, but based on the social settings. And then as long as you understand the social settings, the formulaic joke would work.
3: Are you trying to teach AI how to recognize uh, humor algorithmically? Do you have a sort of rules for communication here, which require kind of sensing in advance what the characteristics of humor are? Or maybe you could use machine learning, where you just feed the computer a million witty remarks and then, you know, let it figure out what humor is.
0: Both have been tried. The early research applied on the rule-based approaches and just took theories of humors into account which uh, typically says that there should be something in the joke that is incongruous. You have two situations, roughly, and in the punchline, they compete. And if you understand what that competition is, what that incongruity is, then you get a joke. On the other hand, there are quite a few approaches that are just looking at machine learning, and they are just feeding millions of jokes, not quite millions, but quite a large number into a machine, and trying to figure out what is the magic ingredient. It's hard to tell which ones of them are more or less successful. But remember that for a machine to understand the ingredients of a joke, it has to understand what the joke is about. It has to understand the language. And as much as we want to believe that computers understand what we are saying, they're not quite that far.
3: All right. Uh, Julia, the other thing about humor is that engaging in it, of course, can be risky depending on the culture, the native language of the audience, whatever. You might be unfunny, I'm sure that happens a lot with me, or worse, offend someone. So we don't want our AI to be cracking offensive jokes. Uh, Is there some sort of filter that can be applied or we just have to make sure that they understand the social implications of what they're saying in a given situation?
0: Yes, you are absolutely right. An offensive humor would be really bad. But actually worse than that, even within the same society, a human can be offended or hurt if uh, it's a personal issue that you may not be aware of. And it's easy for a computer to collect as much information about a person, especially if they tweet or post something or do whatever. So uh, theoretically, a computer isn't much better if we could program at all. in the computer is a much better position not to offend a person based on all of the information that it can collect. But again, it's a matter of putting it into the rules that it is aware of and then can use.
3: Well, finally, Julia, what, what's your favorite form of humor? I mean, you know, slapstick, puns, satire. Uh, do, you, do you have a particular category of humor that you find particularly entertaining?
0: My preferences go to the dry side, but I wouldn't be able to tell you past that, unfortunately.
3: (laughs) Julia Reyes, thank you so very much for speaking with us.
0: It was my pleasure, Seth.
4: Julia Reyes is a computer scientist and associate professor at the Department of Computer and Information Technology at Purdue University. This may be the worst thing that can happen if you try to joke with your virtual assistant. Sorry, I can't help with that.
3: But what if your conversational gambit is not with something in your living room, but with a putative species light-years away? Might your innocent gab provoke interstellar retaliation? Well, this scientist
1: dared to do it anyway. And we send signals to other civilizations because maybe that's what it takes to start the conversation.
3: You're listening to a rebroadcast of an episode of Big Picture Science called Gained in Translation.
2: Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants
3: We've been talking in this episode of Big Picture Science about the challenges and benefits of inventing methods for communication where none previously existed. Computers are programmed to understand language, but as we heard, even the best programmers struggle to put the nuances of levity into their algorithms. Talking to your virtual assistant can feel like talking to an alien, but is it like talking to a real alien?
4: We've long been listening to the skies, hoping to pick up radio signals from extraterrestrials. That's the game plan of SETI, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. But whether humans should try to transmit to possible aliens is hotly debated. Stephen Hawking warned that it was a bad idea, given the possibility that listening aliens might be hostile.
3: But apparently the Lone Star State is not worried about reaching out. Hi, I'm Steve Adler. I'm the mayor of
2: Austin, Texas.
4: When the SpaceX rocket launched in February 19 carrying a moon lander, the city of Austin arranged to have a piece of cargo on board. But it was Nacho Ordinary Cargo.
3: Mr. Mayor, when uh, a SpaceX rocket recently lifted off, it was carrying something special from you. What was that?
2: Well, we, we included a letter to extraterrestrials that contained a recipe for queso as part of an incentive package to encourage those folks to move to Austin.
3: So you're sending a queso recipe, queso. Uh, in this case, it's going to be melted cheese, and this uh, this craft is going to touch down on the moon. The recipe is going to be there for the, uh, for the aliens to pick up. Of all the messages you could send into space, you figure this was the one that would attract them to Texas.
2: Well, you know, we, we figure we've always heard that there's a lot of cheese on the moon, and we thought we'd add to it.
3: I see. Well, okay, who's going to provide the chips, or is that a problem left to the uh, Klingons?
2: You know, once the rocket launched, we realized we forgot the chips.
3: (laughs) Uh, Well, what if the aliens go for, you know, maybe they don't go for dairy, uh, they go for a plant-based diet, or, you know, there is a certain amount of uh, assumption here about the aliens' taste and abilities to taste.
2: There is, but you we know, we're Austin. We took our best shot. We have the best queso here. That's what we're banking on.
3: Well, I guess in this case, you could say, since you're Mayor Adler, that uh, the eagle will have landed.
2: And then that's what we'll say. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Mayor Steve Adler, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you.
4: Sadly, the moonlander was not successful. It crashed during descent thus ending this first privately funded attempt to land on the moon, and, we must say, the possibility of galactic peace brokered over a recipe for hot and spicy melted cheese.
3: But hang on, the contents of the lander are on the moon, so that cheese recipe is too. Besides, President Kennedy told us that going to the moon would not be a breeze.
1: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are cheesy, but because they are hard, like Parmesan.
4: Maybe it's for the best, you know, in case the aliens turn out to be evil Munsters. At any rate, the debate over whether we should reach out to aliens is a feta accompli, because one research group recently did it. Doug Vakoch is a psychologist and the president of the nonprofit organization Medi International.
1: Medi stands for messaging extraterrestrial intelligence, and it's the flip side of SETI. Instead of just listening for signals, we send powerful, intentional radio signals to nearby stars in the hope of getting a reply. And we send signals to other civilizations because maybe that's what it takes to start the conversation. His group transmitted
3: an information-bearing radio signal to a nearby star system in 2017. And as he said, METI is the flip side of SETI. The Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, which is one of the endeavors of the SETI Institute where I work. Now, not everyone was okay with Dr. Vakhoch's ice breaking. Some think that making the first move could be dangerous. The warning by Stephen Hawking is also found in the popular science fiction trilogy, The Three-Body Problem. Broadcasting signals into space might provoke interstellar retaliation.
4: But then we've been transmitting into space since World War II after the invention of radar and television.
1: What time is it, kids? Hi. How are you doing now. Let's go.
4: Seth and Doug from SETI and METI, respectively, and I discuss the benefits and risks of reaching out.
3: Doug, METI International, messaging extraterrestrial intelligence.
1: You are already engaged in sending signals into space? We are. Uh, We sent our first messages in 2017. It was from a powerful radio transmitter in uh, northern Norway called Trumso, Norway. It's a, a location fairly remote. It's best known as a tourist site for people who want to see the northern lights, Aurora Borealis. And there are also scientists who try to understand how these northern lights work and they send radio signals, and some small fraction of them bounce back, and that lets them tell something about the structure and the nature of those lights. Well, you can use the same radio not just to study our atmosphere, but to target nearby stars. And so that's what we did.
3: Okay, so this was not a a facility dedicated to METI. It's a research facility to study the upper atmosphere, the ionosphere.
1: That's right. It's called the European Incoherent Scatter Array. So it's used to, to look at our atmosphere, but then from there, we can use the same technology to try to communicate with ET.
4: What form does the message
5: take?
1: Well, the message that we sent goes by radio waves. And the challenge is that's all the extraterrestrial gets. So they get some radio signals, but we want to communicate something about ourselves to them. We chose to send them signals that are as closely related to the nature of the radio waves as possible. So it would be great to send them a picture of what we look like or what we sound like, but that would mean we'd have to have a foolproof way to reconstruct that. The message we sent was very simple in its form. We taught them some basic arithmetic, how to count by sending pulses, one pulse, 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 so notions of numbers. Then we described notions of time by sending pulses of one second, two seconds, second, three seconds. And then we talked about frequency by sending pulses of different frequencies. So it was an innovative approach because we communicated by sending information about the radio waves themselves. And these are things any physicist should know. You know, they're not going to speak English or Spanish or any other language here on Earth, but if you can build a radio receiver to get our message, you probably know something as basic as 2 plus 2 equals 4. So that's what we started with.
4: Now, you said we decided on this message. Who is the we in this? And did you send this message independently without telling anyone, the rest of the science community? Did you go rogue when you did this? Because there's a there's a big debate within SETI right now whether or not we should be sending messages at all.
1: Yeah, We sent our first signal in 2017, and we made it clear from the time we launched our organization in 2015 this is our plan. So it's important to be transparent about that. And the we behind Medi International is truly an international group of scholars, not just astronomers and engineers, but biologists and psychologists, linguists, philosophers, theologians. And so we have an advisory group and a board of directors from over 20 countries, over 100 individuals, And they provide input on how we make first contact.
4: So, Seth, within the SETI community is what Doug and Medi International did. Was it controversial that they went ahead and they sent out a message, even though there are members within the SETI community that think you shouldn't do that?
3: Well, there aren't many people within the SETI community that are actually against this. There are people in the scientific community if you will there are individuals who feel that this might be dangerous stephen hawking weighed in with a one sentence uh, comment on whether it was a good idea or not to broadcast our presence but within the seti community this has not been a big debate uh, to begin with most of the SETI community has no capability for broadcasting so it's not even an option for them doug maybe you could elaborate a little bit on this broadcast in 2017 How long was the broadcast and uh, where'd you aim it? Whom were you trying to get in touch with?
1: We aimed it at the closest star that was visible from Northern Norway that we knew to have a potentially habitable exoplanet. So it was a star called Leuton's star, just over 12 light years from Earth. And it has a super Earth orbiting within the habitable zone.
3: Have you already arranged for a receiving antenna? for 24 years from now to to get their reply.
1: We need to do that, but I'll certainly be out listening.
4: I wonder if I could ask a question about um, how you engage the aliens in a conversation and if both of you could reply to this because you described the message that you did send in 2017 and it sounded like it was based on mathematics. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But how do you craft a message to alien beings when you don't know what the rules of language might be or whether or not they have language at all
1: we've always said you gotta use something like math or physics because the aliens won't understand English or Swahili I think that's true but our organization held a workshop last year to engage linguists and say is there anything about language that the extraterrestrials would understand Noam Chomsky one of the founders of modern linguistics contributed a paper in which he said you know at its fundamental characteristics, there may be something about our language that an alien has in common. So it's what he called the function of merge. We create complex sentences by merging together two words, like aliens transmit a noun and a verb. That's what we hope they're doing. And you can get more complex by repeating this over and over and get complex sentences. The key point here is that There's a real similarity between that basic hooking together individual words to give meaning and what we do with numbers to create more complex numbers. So I have no illusions that extraterrestrials are going to talk about the past participles or the the kind of linguistic terms we use. But at its core, language is an attempt to make sense of the world. And there may be some underlying cognitive structures, even of our language, that we have in common with aliens.
4: Well, I wonder if I can push back on this idea that we should be doing this at all, only because right now in the popular consciousness is the trilogy, the three body problem that is quite popular right now. And it makes, I won't give anything away for those of you who have not read it, but it makes a powerful case for not contacting aliens. In fact, it suggests that there's an existential threat if we do so. And I wonder if you could both address that. What is the scenario that people imagine could happen if we contact aliens, and then what is your response to that?
3: Uh, this is perhaps the most visible part of the whole METI enterprise, and that is the perceived danger on the part of some people, that by alerting the cosmos that we're here, you know, we will provoke an attack which uh, nobody would welcome. And uh, there are people who do feel that that's a justifiable concern simply because we obviously have no idea about what the behavior, motivations, or intent of anybody out there might be. On the other hand, I don't think that there's any added danger in doing MEDI simply because we are already broadcasting and have been since the Second World War. So I think that this is kind of a red herring, a perceived danger that is, in fact, no more dangerous than what we do as a matter of course.
1: But I think that's the critical point that's lost on the public. I mean, when you have a luminary like Stephen Hawking say, do not transmit to the aliens or they may come to Earth and annihilate us, that really evokes our most primordial fears. And yet the point that Hawking missed is that those civilizations we're worried about, the ones who can come to Earth to annihilate us, can already pick up I Love Lucy or the BBC. So existential threats are all around us. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just take one of them off of your list of daily worries, an alien invasion? I wish I could tell you, Molly, that somehow we would be safer if we didn't send intentional transmissions, but in good conscience, I can't.
3: And not only that, it would require, even if you bought into this, it would require going quiet not only at the local airport where the really strong transmitters are, something that I'm grateful for on a rainy, dark night, and I'm landing, uh, but also to do that, you know, for the entire future history of humankind. And that seems like a very high price to pay uh, to avoid a danger that is totally hypothetical and, in my opinion, uh, not terribly uh, relevant.
4: Although, Seth, you are on the record saying that if the alien ship came and landed in your backyard or on the White House lawn you wouldn't hesitate to run for the hills. No, but that's a different thing.
3: If they land here, that's something else. If you're talking about broadcasting a signal or music into space, that's the difference between seeing Cortez land on your coastline and throwing that bottle
4: into the Pacific. There's a big difference. Okay, so you assume malevolent intent if they land, if they bother to show up here. Well, if they're
3: here, you have no control anymore. If they're here, there's not light years of space insulating you, buffering you from the, the, the evil intentions of anybody who's out there.
1: And, and when Cortez landed, it wasn't by invitation of the indigenous peoples. Right. I mean, Cortez right. came. So if the aliens are on their way, they, they really don't like the music that we have been churning out over the last few decades, then I say we're in a much better position to engage them in a conversation and let them know there's also some rationality on our planet.
3: Now, aside from the danger issue, let me get back to the, uh, the the motivation and what you hope to get out of this. Obviously, you've made one broadcast to light and star that's 12 light years away. That isn't so terribly far. That's pretty close. But there aren't that many stars with planets. Let's assume they all have planets that are within, say, 20 light years or a few hundred or something like that. Isn't it reasonable to assume that you've got to broadcast to many, many, many star systems in order to have a reasonable hope for success.
1: Absolutely. The only way our transmission to Leuton star works is if the entire galaxy is absolutely full of extraterrestrials and the first one we ping has someone who will reply back. You know, that's possible. That's called the zoo hypothesis. That's the hypothesis that says the reason we haven't heard from the aliens is they really are out there, but they're watching us like animals in the zoo. But, Seth, an hour from here we could go to the San Francisco Zoo and imagine we go look at the zebras and we're having a good time, but all of a sudden one of those zebras turns toward us, looks us straight in the eye and starts pounding out a series of prime numbers. You think we're going to go on to the wildebeest? I don't think so. We're going to try to communicate with that zebra. I'm going to take that zebra on the road. You will. but So we, that's what we're trying to do with the extraterrestrials, to engage their interest if, in fact, they're watching. But you make a fair point that, in fact, much more realistically, we will have to ping a hundred or a thousand or even a million stars, and that means we have to go out further and further and further. And so whereas SETI could succeed tonight, METI is an inherently intergenerational project, and I think that's the most daunting aspect of it.
3: Let me ask you something else here. You know, in fiction, the extraterrestrials seem to be either white-hatted or black-hatted. They don't seem to have any colored hats. Uh, So either they're malevolent, as we've been discussing, and you broadcast to them and they do something terrible in return, or maybe they're white-hatted. Could that be? I mean, uh, you know, what if Hawking had said, look, the only hope for humanity is to get some knowledge beyond what it already has so it doesn't self-destruct, and maybe this is what we need to do is broadcast into space. Suppose he had said that.
1: I think this whole encounter with the unknown pulls for the extremes... So the standard responses are either we need to fear for our annihilation or maybe we'll finally receive our salvation from the stars. I think the more realistic scenario is somewhere in between. You know, I I think the best case scenario is we make contact with another civilization. It'll hold a mirror up to ourselves so that we can understand ourselves better.
4: Well, Doug Vakoch, thank you so much for joining us here in studio. It's lovely to see you. My pleasure. And Seth, thank you for joining us in this conversation.
3: Listen, I live in this studio. (laughs) (laughs) Douglas Vakhoch is a psychologist and president of Medi International. Developing a common language is not easy, but the benefits of doing so may be significant. An anthropologist says that nuanced language ultimately made humans a more peaceful species.
4: You're listening to a rebroadcast of a Big Picture Science episode called Gained in Translation.
6: I'm Jane Perez
3: We've been talking in this episode of Big Picture Science about the challenges and benefits of making yourself understood, whether that means teaching AI to appreciate your wisecracking or offering a mathematical olive branch to aliens. But our own species
5: has already benefited by refining verbal communication. Language seems hugely important in creating ourselves, Homo sapiens, about 300,000 years ago, because what language did was it changed us from being a typical, brutal kind of primate into a relatively civilized human being.
4: Harvard University biological anthropologist Richard Wrangham says he knows it doesn't seem like we're a very peaceful species. We have a long history of conflict, violence, and war. But when compared with our primate relatives, we are restrained.
5: We lose our tempers to the point where we actually have some kind of fight at about one thousandth of the rate that a chimpanzee does. That means that in ordinary day-to-day interactions, we're very pleasant with each other. The
3: Goodness Paradox, this strange relationship between virtue and violence and human evolution, is Dr. Rangham's book and explanation for how our species became both generous and cruel, altruistic and murderous, and overall more docile than other hirsute hominids. His new analysis of his and other scientists' work argues that ultimately, nuanced language was the tool that gave us peace. He uses a few key points to arrive at this conclusion.
4: The first is that not all aggression is the same. He and other primatologists have identified two kinds, reactive and proactive.
5: Reactive aggression is what it sounds like. You are interacting with someone, and something that they do threatens you and you react with aggression within a few seconds. Proactive aggression is different from reactive aggression because it does not necessarily involve emotional arousal. Proactive aggression is quietly thinking to yourself that you want to do something that will involve being aggressive towards another individual. And this might be planning to murder them, it might be trying to steal something, which happens to involve getting rid of someone who is trying to defend the object. All of these types are involving a carefully premeditated plan, plan that will involve them not getting hurt at all. So it's different from reactive aggression in several different ways. So there's losing your temper, and then there's the plot of
3: dial M for murder. Both reactive and proactive aggression are expressed by our primate cousins, but not equally. Chimpanzees and bonobos, they're almost identical
5: physically, but bonobos are more cooperative and far less violent. In relationship to our two close relatives, chimpanzees and bonobos, we are like chimpanzees with regard to proactive aggression, and we're much more like bonobos when it comes to our reactive aggression, where bonobos are substantially less aggressive than chimpanzees because they are much less likely to respond to a, a mild threat with direct aggression. And yet even though bonobos are much more peaceful than chimpanzees in that respect, both of them are much more frequently aggressive in this kind of reactive aggression than humans in any population are.
4: So something happened to humans along the way. We became less aggressive than both these primate cousins, but most notably, we cut back on our chimpanzee-like tirades. And if you doubt this, picture passengers seated in an airplane. Each person is squeezed into a seat facing forward with one inch of shared plastic on which to rest their elbows, with the requirement to remain like that for hours at a time. If you think people get cranky, now replace each of those human passengers in your mind with a chimpanzee. Mayhem doesn't begin to describe it.
3: And the peanut supply would be devoured before takeoff. Humans are tolerant, and tolerance is rare in wild animals. What happened was we domesticated ourselves. Humans are a domesticated version of a wilder ancestor, says Dr. Rangham, the way a dog evolved from a wolf although
5: he admits it may feel funny to apply the term domesticated to ourselves. Yes, I mean, it's an awkward phrase in some ways because to think of domestication takes us to the farmyard and the house pet. But it is the only word that has really been applied to describe a phenomenon that is the common feature of all of the familiar domesticated animals, which is that they have a greatly reduced tendency for reactive aggression.
4: About 300,000 years ago is when the fossil record first shows the emergence of our species, Homo sapiens, he says. Our bodies changed in ways that are similar to other domesticated animals. Skulls became narrower, our faces less protruding, teeth smaller, and a reduction in the degree of difference between males and females.
3: These are physical characteristics you'll also find in domesticated animals like dogs and which are associated with reduced aggressiveness, says Dr. Rangham. But then that leads to his big question. What motivated us to tame our
5: wilder natures? The way that I like to approach this is to say, okay, let's go to hunters and gatherers living in small anarchic societies nowadays and ask what happens when a man becomes so aggressive that he tries to use his physical force to dominate everybody in the way that, by the way, non-human primates do, such as chimpanzees or even bonobos. And the answer is very clear. When a man is so inert to ordinary cajoling and ridicule from society that he is prepared to fight anybody to get what he wants, then in the end what the society does is they come together and they exert capital punishment. And that capital punishment, that ability to execute the ultimately despotic, violent guy— is, of course, only possible because they can make a plan, and that plan depends on communicating through our very sophisticated language. For the first time, unlike any other primate, people were able to come together and decide what to do about someone who was an incorrigible, desperate, a really violent man who insisted on getting his way by using his physical strength.
4: I wonder if you could list what those what those physical changes were that emerged in Homo sapiens 300,000 years ago when they were when they had changed genetically from their wild ancestors in this process of self-domestication. What were those physical
5: changes? The physical changes include the males becoming more like females and in the course of that they lose the prominent brow ridges their faces become narrower, the face becomes less protruding, a shorter face, the teeth become smaller. And we think that the process of selecting against aggression in humans led to these other incidental consequences.
4: So could you imagine a contemporary homo sapiens, someone, you know, one of your relatives perhaps, going on a car trip, with the version of human that existed prior to 300,000 years ago when these changes took place, would they have been able to get along?
5: I think that uh, the, the, the early ancestor that gave rise to Homo sapiens uh, would be the kind of individual that would never want to be crossed. So if you came to a different decision about when to stop or what to eat, or who was going to have the bigger share of the cake, then you would find that this would rapidly lead to literally a fight.
4: (laughs) Road trips are difficult enough, so I think (laughs) perhaps we should not go on a road trip with one of our ancestors from 300,000 years ago.
5: It sounds a wise decision to me.
4: Let's come around to the role of language in all of this. So You argue that we were domesticated, and that's why we don't have this reactive aggression that chimpanzees have, and that the tool that helped bring about our domestication was language, and we could use that to construct moral systems. And that began with using language to subdue and punish opponents. Can you give an example of how language allowed us to do that and how that would have come about?
5: If there is someone who is throwing his weight around physically in a small isolated group, then the problem that the victims of his aggression have is what to do about him in a way that keeps them safe. And we see that this is a problem because suppose that you and I are both worried about some individual, call him Bert, who is incredibly nasty to both of us. If I say to you, look, you know, what if you and I took Bert for a walk and pushed him off a cliff, then the danger is that you might go to him and say, you know what that guy Richard is saying? He's wanting to get rid of you. So I would then be very vulnerable. That means that the process of communicating ideas about what to do has got to be very, very delicate. I want to be able to just raise a topic with at the same time some plausible deniability with you. And that seems to me to mean that even if there was some kind of language in other members of the genus Homo, it would take a pretty sophisticated form to be able to get to the point where individuals could form conspiracies that would give them sufficient confidence that they would really be able to carry out a plan against someone who is very scary.
4: So language allows us to negotiate, to barter, to come up with rules of engagement, and from there the system of morality
5: emerged. I think that the way that morality emerged, as Christopher Boehm, the great anthropologist, has described, is that once you have a regular system by which Uh, men in particular, but to some extent members of both sexes, are able to conspire to get rid of an aggressive bully, they also are able to get rid of anybody in the group. And that means that they can get rid of anybody who challenges the interests of those who can conspire and execute. And that means that there is a tremendous premium on individuals being very quick to agree with the group majority. Because if you don't, if you put yourself up as the individual with wacky ideas, who is always challenging what the dominant group wants to do, then you put yourself at risk of being seen as so non-conformist that maybe you're responsible for the rain's not coming or the attack on our village by the neighbors, or the thunderstorm, or some other disaster, natural or man-made. And at that point, you risk being executed yourself as an outsider. And we have all too many cases of this in the ethnographic literature about small-scale societies, so that it's easy to imagine that natural selection would favor the evolution of emotions that mean that we very readily agree with the group as a whole in a way that no other animal does.
4: Well, I want to press you on this a bit. So it sounds like your theory that the threat of punishment, of capital punishment perhaps, made us more docile, we're going to be more in compliance with the group. But it seems to me that that theory only explains the absence of behavior that the group would look down upon. It doesn't explain the emergence of virtuous behavior, or altruism, or just plain goodness. It just explains the absence of badness.
5: Well, I think you're right that it does explain the absence of badness, but I also think it does explain the emergence of goodness because once you have capital punishment, the ability to kill nonconformists, or to kill individuals who don't benefit the group by their actions, then they can become victims too, those individuals who are not helpful. So the way I see it, it was the ones who were ready to share their food with the rest of the group who were able to survive when those who were more selfish did not. They came to be seen as the witches and suddenly it was a good idea to send them back to the witches. In other words, there was selection in favor of those who we would think of as good because they're helping others in the group, because there was selection against those who didn't do that, those who were more self-centered and less ready to help when help was needed.
4: Chimps are violent, both reactive aggression and proactive aggression. They will attack a member of their group. So a number of chimps get together, they'll attack another member of their group. Is that correct?
5: Well, uh, let's be careful here. Uh, They will get together and attack a member of another group.
4: Of another group. Well, what I was going to ask, and and maybe you've answered it in in your reply, is that chimps can do that without the use of language. They don't need to conspire. They don't need to come to rules of engagement before they go in and attack a, a member of another group.
5: That's right. So that doesn't need language because they have, as it were, a sort of a biologically influenced agreement that any member of another group deserves to be killed. And they show tremendous excitement about the opportunity to go and kill someone else. In fact, they don't show any kind of elaborate planning at all. Every now and again, what will happen is that uh, if they have enough food at home and they're they're well fed, they will go and make a journey to the edge of their border. And then they look for other individuals, and if they find them, they will stalk up them and kill them.
4: So it sounds like they can engage in this premeditated behavior without the use of language, and yet you're arguing that we need language in order to do that.
5: Yes, you are so right. And so the issue here is that it's easy to organize these killings if you all agree who should be killed. The problem arises when the killing is of somebody within their own group. And there, there is no evidence that the chimpanzees can do the same thing. They can kill members of their own group, but the way it happens is it starts in a reactive aggression, and it involves all sorts of messy behavior in which the aggressors themselves can get hurt, in which there is not a necessary agreement among the uh, attackers, the potential attackers. You get some defending the victim. You get some attacking the victim. So it's kind of a melee unlike the planned, careful capital punishment that have been described so often among hunter-gatherer societies.
4: Language can be used to threaten violence in order to quell violence. It sounds like that's one method by which this morality emerges. But language, yes, indeed. but language can also be used to quell violence as well altogether. Peaceful language can talk people down. I mean, we can avoid violence altogether through appropriate use of language.
5: Yes. And of course, you know, much of what happens in the control of uh, violent individuals is that they are talked out of it. Fortunately, nowadays, normally, individuals can be domesticated not so much through genetic selection, but through just cultural persuasion.
4: Richard Wrangham, thank you so much for joining us today.
5: Thank you,
3: Molly. It's a privilege. Richard Wrangham is a biological anthropologist at Harvard University and the author of The Goodness Paradox, The Strange Relationship Between Virtue and Violence in Human Evolution.
4: Thanks to the talents of those who speak our language in producing the show, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer Molly Bentley.
3: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life on the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and a big thanks also to our listeners.
4: Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science that's called Gained in Translation, that originally aired in April 2019. You'll find more episodes, including recent ones about the coronavirus pandemic, on our website, BigPictureScience.org. You'll also find links there to the guests you've heard. And if you never want to miss
3: an episode, subscribe to Sai on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Himalaya.
1: And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your cream cheese can do for you, ask what you can do for your cream cheese. And the other things, like pairing it with pepper jelly, Adding it to broccoli. Spread it on your bagel. I don't know. You'll think of something. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.